copyrighted program created by the Rio Grande Oil Company. Up on this lease, calling all cars, attention all cars, broadcast 163. Go to 40th place in Figueroa, invested a bank robbery. That's all. Rose is there. times in these broadcasts that Rio Grande Cracked Gasoline is by long odds the favorite motor fuel of the law enforcement and public protective agencies of our local government. But have you ever stopped to think what this really means? Well, here are the figures for 1936. 3,724,318 gallons of Rio Grande Cracked Gasoline were used in police cars, fire engines, ambulances, and other emergency equipment. At 15 miles to the gallon, this tremendous quantity would drive your car more than 55 million miles around the world, 2,327 times. If you started now and drove 50 miles an hour, 24 hours a day for 127 and a half years, in other words, until the 4th of July in the year 2064, you would still have 19,000 miles to go. Don't you feel the judgment of the men who show such an overwhelming preference for Rio Grande Gasoline is to be respected? Isolated cases might be challenged, but there must be an advantage for you in following the lead of so many. Oakland, Berkeley, Fresno, Santa Barbara, Los Angeles, San Diego, Phoenix, Tucson, Orange County, San Diego County, Maricopa County, and others. This list you will observe includes two of the three largest cities in California and the largest county in Arizona, the law enforcement offices of which protect the lives and property of one-third of the people in Arizona. Each of the governmental agencies in this impressive list has specified Rio Grande cracked gasoline exclusively month after month. Why don't you do that this year? Hundreds of thousands of other motorists have found it very much to their advantage. Start in tomorrow. To your Rio Grande independent dealer. Once again, we present Chief James E. Davis of the Los Angeles Police Department. Chief Davis. Good evening, friends. Tonight, I am not going to follow my usual custom of talking about the crime to follow on calling all cars. Instead, I should like to say a few words about a situation that has become a crisis here in Los Angeles, the problem of traffic fatalities. As 1937 ushered itself in to the accompaniment of joyful celebration, it left an old year behind it that has rolled up the staggering traffic death figure of 1,040 persons. In 12 short months, 1,040 people just like you and me, lost their lives on the highway, three-quarters of them because of the carelessness on someone's part. A new year has started, and already the deaths have started piling up. That is why I say it is a crisis, a crisis that cannot be allowed to go on unchecked. So tonight, think it over, and then drive accordingly. If you, as citizens, will help by driving carefully and thoughtfully, Perhaps from 1937 rolls into 1938, you will have been instrumental in letting some person alive today live another year. 
Who knows? That person might be you. Los Angeles, April 15th, 1929. 2.30 o'clock. Behind the iron grill marked Keller in the Citizens National Bank of Boyer's place in Figueroa, a young man glances at the wall clock, then back to the figure of a woman approaching his window. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. I wonder if you'd do me a favor and read this telegram for me. Telegram? Yes, that's a chance, sir. Thanks. Oh, but this isn't a telegram. Can you didn't read it first. Still, it's easy to be a stock. I know what it's like. Oh, there isn't $5,000 in here. Look, little man. You know what's good for you? Somebody builds a cross under this bag and make it fast and quiet. All right. I will. Here you are. This is all I've got. Well, listen. You ought to not know about being covered by three bins. If you make a cross on it, about this for 20 minutes after I walk out of here, it'll be the last thing you ever say. Understand? Yes, I do. Oh, okay. Don't forget it. Uncertain, I suggest what to do. The young fellow stands in the for five long minutes. A woman's warning words ringing in his ears. Don't tell anyone for 20 minutes or else. Then, by a supreme effort, he takes off the fear that binds him and hurries to the chief teller's office where he tells his story. And when he has finished, a stony silence is his only answer. Then, do you expect me to believe that? Expect you to believe it? Of course, it's what happened. A woman walked in and asked you for all the money, and you just handed it over and then stood there for five minutes before telling anybody. Well, she told me I'd be killed if I moved for 20 minutes. I didn't want that to happen. Oh, no, of course not. And you didn't want anybody to find out about it until your confederate had plenty of time to get away, did you? What are you talking just about? Just that. Thought you could get away with this little scheme. You thought everybody would believe your story about a holdup. Well, it won't work. But it's what happened. I don't believe one word. And I don't think the manager will either. However, he'll just go up to his office and see. Come along, Mr. Brown. And strangely enough, the manager of the bank refuses to believe the story either. With the result, the young fellow, after an hour of futile explaining, is discharged. The police, however, after questioning him, failed to find any good reason to arrest him, and the incident gradually blows over. Five months go by, during which the now bitter teller buys a small ranch, settles down to a rural life as a country farmer. Then, on the morning of September 4th, 1929, into the office of the Los Angeles burglary detail walks a middle-aged, well-dressed man. Obviously embarrassed, he inquires for the person in charge. It's directed to Lieutenant Teddy Chipwood, yes. Good morning. <coughs> are, uh, <coughs> are you the uh, gentleman in charge here? Not the moment, yes. What can I do for you? <laughs> well, uh, there's a matter come up. Well, that is to say, uh, a matter that I uh, don't think really means anything. Mm-hmm, I see. You see, it's the thing that, uh, that is a matter of fact, I'd never bother you about it. It was my wife. She insists. That I support it. Well, uh, go right ahead. What's it all about? I'm not taking up your time. No, 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 not at all. Go right ahead. Well, you see, we, well, that is my wife and I, have a young lady living at our house. She's a very nice young lady. Very nice. And uh, I wouldn't want anything to sound as though I were suspicious of her option, but 
Uh, okay, look here. If it will help any, whatever you want to tell me will be kept in the strictest confidence. Well, that make it easier. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it will. Uh, well, sir. You see, this young lady is separated from her husband, and, and she and her baby are sort of living at our house because we... Sorry, sorry for her. My wife is very sympathetic person. You know how that is. Oh, yes, of course. Well, the thing that caused all this was this, this girl's husband. He, he's something of a loafer. He works with, a, with an extra at the studios occasionally, but never makes any money. So he's been coming over to see her every once in a while, and, and last night he had a lot of money with him. Uh, I mean, really, a large amount. So naturally, my wife thought it kind of strange, and as a matter of fact, so did I. But it is in our business, and... Well, I was all for letting it go. But you uh, changed your mind? Yes. Well, that is my wife changed it for me. She feels that uh, you should know about it, and she said that if I wouldn't come down, she would. So I came down. Did this man say where he got all this money? Oh, no. Naturally, he didn't ask him. But I noticed that it was mostly all in $20 bills. That seems rather odd, isn't it? More 20, huh? Yes, yes, yes. Well, if you leave your name and address and phone number with me, I'll look into it and let you know. Now, what's this girl's husband's name? Um, Martin. Uh, Jim was his first name, I think. Mm, Jim, uh, no, I say Martin. And you say he works with an extra occasionally. Oh, yes, yes. He's in thanks here. All right. I'll look into it and let you know. And thanks a lot for coming in. Oh, that's, that's quite all right. I, um, well, good day. Lieutenant Ditchwood, although not expecting to find anything, browses through several recent police bulletins, finds two on men wanted for bank robbery, glances casually through the data on them. Suddenly, he notices one line that bears a significant statement. Red? Yeah? Come here a minute, William. What's on your mind? Uh, listen to this. The bills stolen in this robbery consisted mostly of $20 bills. So? I've got a brainstorm. You saw that fellow I was talking to a while back, middle-aged fellow? Yes. And he came in to tell me that a young man whose ex-wife lives at his house flashed a roll of 20s last night. A young man that never has a dime to his room. You figure he might know something about this bank job? I figure we might do well to have a talk with him. Okay, when do we start? I think now would be as good a time as any. We'll take this bulletin with us and see how the description checks. Come on. The address given to him by his earlier visitor, Ditchwood and Long, find him and his wife at home. From them, the two detectives get a good description of Martin, also with his friends who work in the studios. Also a phone number where Martin lives. A check on the number reveals the address to be that of a residence on Hollywood Boulevard. Accordingly, Ditchwood and Long drive there in hopes of finding the suddenly rich young man at home. Definitely see the place that's that old already up. The prince with Martin doesn't live alone in the barn that time. Probably has a room. Let's pull in the lot and let the place over. Yeah, okay. Here comes the gent that runs the place. Maybe he knows Martin by sight. Maybe I'll ask him. Uh, we're looking for a fellow that lives around here someplace. I thought maybe you might know him. Uh, he used to live in that big house over there. Well, I might know him at that. There are five young fellows live there. Most of them are what uh, is his name? Uh, Joe. Joe Jones. Joe Jones? Uh, yeah. Well, I don't think I know anyone by that name. Yeah, sort of dark hair, good-looking young fellow. Well, there's a couple of them have dark hair. Good-looking enough, too, for that matter, but, uh, 
Well, thanks, anyway. Well, that's all right. You might go over and ask at the house yourself. I guess you could find out from that night. Oh, sure. That'd be the thing to do, all right. Come along with it. Let's drive around. We could walk over there. Yeah, I think you'd better drive over. Okay, if you want to drive over, we will. Well, you must be getting lazy. Mm -hmm. Sure, I'm lazy, all right. I'm going to let you go. Yes, you are. We drive. Right, we were going to find out. I know the house, but we're not. I've got a hint that our friend Martin might get wise if we that and pull out of it. So we drive to your house and get your wife to call this number and ask for him, you see. And then we give him some story to get him away from there and pick him up with the story. Okay, I don't know yet. You drive and I'll pick it up on the way. <laughs> Don't tell me that you and Eddie are paying me a social call. Oh, hello, dear. Eddie and I have a favor you can do for us. A telephone call. Here, here's the number, Eddie. Oh, I'll do it, of course. What's it all about? Well, we're trying to flesh a bird out into the open, Mrs. Long, and thought maybe you'd call this number and ask for Jim Martin. It would help us. What do I do in the answer? Uh, you tell him that you're Mrs. Adams and that uh, Polly is very sick. Mrs. Adams? Polly is sick? That's right. And tell him she wants him to come over to the house right away and uh, make it sound urgent. Whose house? Well, Mrs. Adams. Uh, that's where Polly is. Well, I could ask who Polly is, but I'll try not to. Now, let me see if I've got this straight. I'm Mrs. Adams, and Polly is very sick and wants him to come over to the house right away. Right? <laughs> Perfect. Are you good? <laughs> of course I'll do it. But you better come along with me while I phone. Just to prompt me if I can. All right, I'll stand right beside you. But the main thing is, make Jim go over to Polly. Calling the number, Mrs. Long contacts a man who says he is Jim Martin. Given the message, he sounds at first skeptical, but finally says he'll be over in 15 minutes. Accordingly, Chipwood and Long lose no time driving to the Adams' house, where they park their car and make plans. Long agrees to watch from across the street while Chipwood takes a position next to the house from where he can see, but is hidden from sight himself. Ten minutes passed. Fifteen minutes, and no sign of the wanted man. Then suddenly a car pulls up across the street. A tall, dark-haired man steps out, starts across, and a straight path for the house. Waiting until he's certain, Chitwood watches. The man crosses the lawn. Almost reaches the porch step. Then, making no noise, he walks up behind him, takes his arm. Well, hello, Jim. Huh? Hey, what the devil is this? Oh, you're headed for it, Jim. I, uh, I, I was just looking for an address, and my name's not Jim. Oh, not Jim. Jim Martin? Oh, I never heard of him. Yeah. What is your name? It's, uh, Smith. Bill Smith. Bill Smith, eh? <laughs> that's an original name. Bill Smith. Well, that's my name. Okay, Bill. Let you and I take a ride down to station. I want the boys to get a look at the eighth wonder of the world. The original Bill Smith. But on the way to the station, Fitwood changes his mind and decides to talk to his suspect first. Driving to an isolated section of Hollywood, Long parks the car under a huge tree, turns off the motor. Hey, what's the idea of stopping here? I uh, just have a desire to see what you've got on you before we go any further, that's all. Get out of the car. Hey, now, wait a minute. You've got no right. I said to get out of the car. All right. You'll have to get the cuff about it. Uh, I don't intend to unless you make me. 
I'll take off your coat and hand it to me. What's the big idea anyway? All right, all right. Thank you. Take a thorough look through him, Ed, while I look this coat over. Right. Put your hands over your head, Smith. Don't miss anything, Ed. I have a hunch our friend might have a few things of interest on him. Ah, this doesn't make any sense. I don't know what you're looking for, but you won't find anything on me. Oh, no? What's this, then? Uh, I, I don't know. You don't know? That's funny. Can you imagine a fellow carrying a roll of twenty-dollar bills around with him and not knowing it, Ed? It's got a nice new stamp on the package, too. Bank of America, huh? Where did that come from? You mean right now or when you stole it from the bank? What do you mean stole it? Well, look, Mr. Bill Smith, for your information, we've got the finger right on you for that bank job. Now, what I want to know is, do you want to take the rap alone, or do you want to tell us who your pals are? I didn't have anything to do with any bank job. Oh, yes, that means you want the whole rap yourself. Huh? You can't prove anything on me. Oh, that's what you do. I know different. Come on, Ed. Let's take this lad to his future home. Maybe a few hours there will lose me, son. But Martin, although practically as good as convicted on the strength of the evidence found on him, refuses to talk anymore. Later, still denying everything, he's placed in jail. From his wallet, the name Bert Hall is taken on a card with a phone number written below it. Asking on a hunch this might be another of the gang sit with a long sexy address, then drive out to a place in the lower Hollywood Hills. And when they arrive there, sudden doubt will fail them. Listen, Eddie, something's wrong here. This is a respectable, high-class neighborhood. Look at the houses. Yeah, this place is much too elegant for a cook to hang out. Oh, look over there. A little girl coming out of the house. Oh, yeah. Now, come on, we got the wrong place. Let's go back and check the address again. Okay, it's a sense that this is the wrong place. But back at the station, another check proves the address to be the same as the phone number. And Fitzwood and Long decide that high-class neighborhood or no high-class neighborhood, they are going to investigate. So once again, they drive to the house. And this time, they walk to the door, ring the bell. Uh, I'm going to ask for Bert to, if anything happens, be ready to push in with me. Yes? Yeah. Oh, hello. Uh, Bert here? No. Well, we're friends of the agent. Oh, working at the studio? Uh, yes. You say your friend is here? Oh, that's right. I'm here. Yeah, sure enough. Do you think you'll be back soon? No, not too late. Probably be 12 or 12. Oh, that late, eh? I'm afraid so. You still get into the money left in the bank sticker? Well, so what are you trying to tell us? Oh, you don't. Oh, 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 you're a cop, aren't you? That's right. Why are you barking up the wrong thing? You know what you're under arrest for. Sure. No, of course not. Oh, that's two counts against you. First, that quit you made when I asked you about the money, and now this. Come on, why don't you relax and tell us all about it? I don't have the faintest idea what you're talking about. As far as I'm concerned, you can sit here till the cows come home. Why are you not interested in cows? All we want right now is your friend, Bert. The cows will have to wait. <laughs> Convinced that they're in the right place, Kitwood and Long settle down to await the missing first arrival. Several hours go by and no sign of him. At a quarter to twelve, Long decides to go outside and keep his eye out in case the man might arrive and get wise. Kitwood and the woman sit inside, staring at one another. Suddenly, she grabs her jaw, a look of agony on her face. Oh. Mm, what's the matter? Oh, my goodness. God bless him every once in a while. God bless him. Oh. Oh, anything I can do to make it feel better? No, no. Oh, if I could go into my room and lie on the bed, I, I could put a cold compress on. 
Why not lie down here on this couch? No, I'll lie on my own bed. More comfortable. You can come in there with me. I don't see what's wrong with it. Right here on the couch. I want to lie on my own bed. Mm. Okay, then, all right. Oh, thanks. It's right in here. Wait, wait a minute. Yeah. I don't like the idea. You want to be in there too badly? I think I'll call my partner and see what you're up to. Oh, it's nothing. It's only about two hooks. What is it? Better not make any fast moves when I open this door. Red, give me a minute, fast. Not this year. Come on in. Keep a close eye on this woman while I look into that bedroom. Nothing tells me all is not as it should be. Okay, go ahead. I'll watch it. Anything starts, you take care of her and I'll do the rest, right? There's no one in here. Let's see what's so interesting about this bed. Oh, so this is the answer, eh? He's nasty looking drunk. Well, I know the bed. Well, two more. What's your idea of the arsenal, ladies? Oh, don't you like talking, eh? Well, I can tell you in prison. If I'd call for that toothache, Dad, and walk in here with you, eh? then all you have to do is reach under the covers and grab one of these guns and blast me to pieces. Is that right? Yeah, sure. Uh, you still don't feel like talking. Well, I don't blame you. Well, let's see if there's anything else under here. Well, well, now, isn't this a nice little nest there? What have you found out? Well, a roll of putties big enough to cook a horse. Well, it's just about 50 to come in. Okay, so. All we've got to do now is just sit tight and wait for Bert. And won't he be surprised when he gets there? But as morning comes, there's still no sign of Bert. And the two detectives decide to take the woman to headquarters alone. All the way in, they take turns trying to get her to talk. And all the way in, she refuses to admit any knowledge of anything. At last, as they pull up in front of the Hall of Justice, Chip would play the trump card. Yes, here we are. Oh, that's whatever. Last chance to talk. I haven't anything to talk about. Oh, that's your funny. Martin had plenty to say. Martin? Well, sure, we've had him here since yesterday. Silently, Chip would edge up behind him. 
reaches around his arms and snaps a pair of handcuffs on his wrist. Hey, hey what is this? Some sort of a gag? Not that you've noticed, sir. Are you surprised? No, naturally. What's it all about? Oh, you don't look very surprised. In fact, you look as though you've been sort of expecting something like that. Well, I haven't. I don't know what you're trying to pull, but it's no good. All right, let's stop calling around. We've got your wife. We've got your friend Martin, and they both talk and talk plenty. Now, what do you say about that? What would you say? And if I were you, I don't know. I'll say this, though. You're certainly pretty much of a heel. What do you mean, heel? Letting your wife hold up those banks all by herself? I ought to be ashamed of yourself. Listen, Fatfoot. I didn't let her do those jobs alone. I was right there with a gun all the time. I don't believe it. Yeah, well, I can prove it. I was there on every job, and I was right in the bank, and she pulled her ass. Now, what do you think of that? Well, I think you've just picked yourself up for good, folks. What do you mean? I thought if I hurt your ego a little, you'd talk. I never saw a punk like you that wouldn't start boasting given a chance. But this time, you've boasted your way right smack into Sam Quinn. Come on, let's join the party. A few days later, a somewhat chagrined Keith Keller once again faces his ex-employee, prepares to make amends. Uh, young man, it's, uh, it's good to see you again. Thank you, sir. You uh, know, of course, why I uh, sent for you, sir. Yes, sir. Uh, I guess so, sir. Last Friday, when I saw by the papers that the police had found the uh, criminal who robbed the bank, I realized that perhaps you have been a little Thank you, sir. But uh, as good news for you, I want to offer you your old job back. Well, <laughs> thank you, sir, but... You see, I don't want it. You uh, don't want it? No, sir. You see, if I hadn't been fired, I might never know what a farm was like. But, well, I was fired, and now, well, sir, I don't ever want to leave my farm. I don't want to work in a bank again as long as I live. Thousands of motorists who listened to these Calling All Cars broadcasts during 1936, switched to Rio Grande to crash gasoline in the hope that they, too, would be able to see the thrill of police car performance. They were not disappointed, for independent Rio Grande dealers offered to the public exactly the same Rio Grande crash gasoline that powers more police cars, fire engines, ambulances, and other emergency equipment wherever it is sold than any other brand. Thousands more will switch to Rio Grande to crash gasoline during 1937. Will you be one of them? Why not? Don't be satisfied with sluggish, slow-burning, sputtering gasoline. Rio Grande Crash gasoline costs you no more. And Rio Grande Crash gasoline is broken up, cracked into tiny atoms that burn more readily and more completely. This is why you've got quicker starting, faster pickup, greater power. Your independent Rio Grande dealer also offers you the best motor oils you can buy. No wax. No petroleum jelly, no impurities in Sinclair, Pennsylvania, and Sinclair opening motor oil. So free-flowing and heat resisting, you can use the same grade summer and winter. Sinclair eyes for safety. And have you seen the latest copy of Calling All Cars News? Your independent Rio Grande dealer will be glad to give you a copy free. Brighter and easier this year than ever before. Exclusive screen star news. Thrilling detective stories. Many photographs and illustrated features. Get your copy tomorrow.